Let's talk science, shall we? We always enjoy doing science segments because, well, there's so many cool things happening in science, and they, they tend to be rather up topics. When we talk about things having to do with politics, they tend to be rather down topics. And isn't it a shame that that's the way of the world? But anyway, we have some good news on the parrot front. You may have seen the movie or read the book, The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill, or perhaps when you were in San Francisco, you've seen this flock of 100 or so green and red feisty parrots. Well, it turns out that the colony near Telegraph Hill, which attracted so much attention about a decade ago, has now moved, or at least uh, there's now an outpost colony in Brisbane. By that I mean the town uh, south of San Francisco, not the one in Australia. There's about 100 or so parrots that have taken up residence there, leaving 100 or so back up in Telegraph Hill, which is kind of cool. They are reportedly feasting on juniper and hawthorn berries and delighting locals with their acrobatics. Mark Bittner, the author of the best-selling The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill, has said all he cares about is that they stay wild and free. He suggests that people in Brisbane just enjoy them. They're fun, they make people laugh, and they never scream at night. Article in the San Francisco Chronicle by Carolyn Jones notes that although these parrots are native to South America, they have adapted well to big city life, and they don't appear to be bothered by the chilly weather or curious humans. Of course, they were such a hit in San Francisco that five years ago, they passed a law prohibiting people from feeding them because so many humans were offering treats that the birds were becoming dangerously tame and vulnerable to capture and sickness. And in other good news on the bird front, it turns out the North American duck population is now at an all-time high, which frankly I find astonishing. But an article by Paul Rogers in the Mercury News notes that scientists now say the number of mallards, teals, canvasbacks, and other ducks has reached the highest level ever recorded, with a total estimate of 48.6 million breeding ducks in Canada and the U.S. Researchers say that favorable weather conditions the last two years, mainly rains in the spring and significant snowmelt, have created lots of new wetlands and ponds in the Canadian prairies where these ducks breed. Notes the piece, more ducks means more food for predators such as peregrine falcons, golden eagles, foxes, and bobcats. And notes the article, back in 1985, Ronald Reagan signed a farm bill that created a new program that paid farmers if they allowed some parts of their land to go fallow and planted native grasses, trees, and other vegetation. Known as the Conservation Reserve Program, this policy created millions of acres of new habitat for ducks, pheasants, and other wildlife. And there's a similar program in place in Canada. Helping also is the ban on lead shot, which sometimes would uh, wound a bird and then later poison it. And we do want to give a nod, too, to the, the, to the Ducks Unlimited organization. Their spokesman, Mark Biddlebaum, says ducks are an indicator of the overall health of the environment. And if we can sustain numbers of birds like we're seeing in Canada and the U.S., then we have a healthy environment. If the numbers are going down, then the environment is not what it should be. Now, of course, even though we're trying to make this a science topic, politics does seem to creep in. How about this, what, this item? A bill backed by House Republicans would stall plans to let sea otters reclaim their historical range off Southern California out of fear that the threatened marine mammals might compromise commercial fishing and Navy training operations. According to the LA Times, a bill by Representative Elton Galligley from Simi Valley, Republican, would keep a controversial, quote, no otter zone south of Point Conception in Santa Barbara County in place until wildlife officials develop a plan ensuring that the otters and endangered abalone recover and that the commercial shellfish harvest stays at current levels. 
Critics say that lawmakers are using national defense as a cover to benefit the fishing industry, which fears that otters will gobble up the region's shellfish. You know, I think the world population of sea otters is like 2,500. to believe that a few sea otters could wipe out commercial fishing in Southern California, particularly given that one of their favorite foods is sea urchins, and sea urchins like to eat kelp, and when they eat the kelp, you don't have as much environment, it's not as productive, and you don't have as many fish and shellfish, etc., etc., etc. Then we'd be asking, of course, for Republican politicians to think logically, which is kind of a tall order. Oh, and I didn't want this to be a political segment... But I guess I can't help it completely because the next segment is about the atmosphere. Notes New Scientist magazine, parts of the planet have now seen levels of CO2 rise to above 400 parts per million for the first time. It's described as largely a symbolic measurement. This milestone is nevertheless a stark reminder of humanity's powerful influence on the environment. According to Peter Tans of the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Earth Science Research Lab, that's a mouthful, in Boulder, Colorado, during the month of April, the mean was over 400 parts per million for the first time. It's noted that levels reach an annual peak around April as the gas is released by respiration and then falls over the summer as plants suck it up. As a result, the 2012 average will be a little lower at about 939 parts per million. Nevertheless, says Tan, global levels will top 400 parts per million in a few years. And there is a campaign out to try and get the uh, levels down to uh, 350 parts per million. In fact, it's titled 350.org. But according to TANS, that's a rather arbitrary number. The safe level could be 380, 320. We just don't know. But it's pretty undeniable that any growth in CO2 increases the risks of catastrophic climate change. So what do we do about it? Well, most of what the world's been doing about it is nothing. And we would remind you that for all the talk about alternative energy sources using geothermal, which has a small role to play, or using solar, which which is important up to a point, or using wind energy, which has proven itself on a small scale, aside from these uh, carbon-free methods of generating energy, uh, well, we're screwed. We're screwed because unless we add nuclear power to the mix, there just simply isn't enough oomph out there to really meet our power needs. I believe in California, something like one-fifth of our energy comes from nuclear power plants. I believe that's the figure for the nation anyway, which is pretty significant. When you compare that to what uh, people's uh, home solar panels or the wind farms in the Altamont Pass are generating, well, it's just, it's just dwarfed by our needs, which is one reason why we are not against nuclear power. Does it have problems? Yes. Does there appear to be a viable alternative? No. Of course, I would note that that opinion, like any heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. In fact, it doesn't even reflect the opinion of a lot of friends of mine who are fairly anti-nuke. But, um, well, I think the facts speak for themselves. To believe whatever you want to believe, but if you're interested in like uh, stopping the increases in CO2 in the atmosphere, you're going to have to give nuclear power a look. And that's, I think, just about all there is to it. Now, there is talk about mitigation of our climate and trying to find a way to get rid of the CO2. This, of course, is something we should pursue. In fact, there's a thought now that if we can put iron particles into the southern ocean, iron down there is believed to be the rate limiting step on the growth of algae. In other words, it's what's holding the, the growth back. So there's a thought that we can go down to the Antarctic, dump a bunch of iron out, and see a growth of algae, which will then die and sink to the bottom of the ocean and carry this carbon dioxide with it. 
And in fact, to that end, scientists have just conducted a trial, which has, has showed some promise. Piece in New Scientist magazine by Mike Marshall, describing how this theory is that you put iron in there, you can get CO2 down to the bottom of the ocean and out of the atmosphere, was described as, uh, in practice, charitable to say that uh, results have been mixed so far. Noted the piece, the idea of sort of was uh, in big trouble back in 2009 after a field trial called Low Effects failed. The iron triggered a bloom, but the bloom got eaten by crustaceans before it could sink. But curiously, there was a previous trial conducted in the Southern Oceans back eight years ago in 2004, the results of which have finally been published, and those seem a little more promising. Described as IFEX, E-I-F-E-X, they went down and found a slowly rotating eddy about 60 kilometers across, about four miles deep, which is more or less isolated from surrounding waters. Apparently, researchers from the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research in Germany dumped iron sulfate into the eddy's core and studied the resulting bloom. Reportedly, the water was rich in silicate acid, so the bloom was dominated by phytoplankton called diatoms. These algae build silica walls. You, you've seen this stuff, diatomaceous earth. They sell it in, uh, in, in nurseries. They also use it for filtering in, 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 in pool systems and the like. Since the, uh, the silica skeletons of these little organisms act like little filters, at any rate, the piece notes the diatom bloom grew for three weeks, then died, and sank. They think at least half of it sank below one kilometer and probably reached the sea floor. So the thought here is if we can find an area where there's lots of silicate acid that you know, the diatoms can use, you add the iron there, and it'll sink. So obviously more science is needed in this area, but uh, you know, we hope that um, this will pan out. And one byproduct of this may be that uh, they'll be able to boost whale populations, believe it or not. Notes new scientists in an accompanying piece, many southern ocean whales feed on Antarctic krill. This krill is one of the few species that eat diatoms. At least they, they eat them in large quantities. But krill numbers have been plummeting for decades. And curiously, ecologists suspect that the declining krill numbers are linked to humanity's overhunting of whales. Apparently, whale feces are rich in the iron that helps fuel diatom growth, which in turn benefits the krill and ultimately the whales. Researchers note that whales might be effectively fertilizing their own food, and a reduction in whale populations would impact that food resource. Which is a curious idea, but wouldn't it be nice if putting some iron in the southern oceans would not only take CO2 out of the atmosphere, but bring back the whales? We hope so. Now, you may have noted some headlines about uh, Richard Muller from UC Berkeley changing sides on this global warming controversy. We had him on the show a few years back talking about his book, Physics for Presidents. He was noted at that time to be very skeptical that uh, global warming was human-caused. But after studying the data at great length, he has now come around to thinking that, yes, this is going on, and yes, overwhelmingly, humans are to blame. Let's see if we can't bring Richard Muller back on the program. I believe he was on uh, uh, Forum on KQED earlier this week. And no, I have not listened to it, but I believe that would be uh, probably well worth your time, dear listener, at least until we can get Dr. Muller back on this program. Who knows, maybe Richard Muller will make an appearance on Insight. I know he made one because I had him on. I don't know, they, but I don't know, they may be booked up having somebody fry zucchini live in studio. I'm not sure. But uh, speaking of local doctors who are smart and worth talking to, we refer you to UC Davis Magazine's Spring 2012 edition for a piece by Sasha Abramsky about Dr. Garen Wintemute. Dr. Wintemute, who was one of my... Uh, 
staff physicians when I was in training over at UC Davis many years ago, has taken the rather uh, sensible view that um, gunshot wounds in this country and gun violence uh, should be regarded as a health crisis, which of course it is, as we've seen in Colorado recently. Noted the piece by Sasha Abramsky back in 1994, Gary Wintemute produced a report titled Ring of Fire, which was a devastating indictment of the business practices of the gun industry in an era of escalating gun violence, an era I would say has continued to this point. The report concluded that people with prior felonies who were failing background checks sought out guns made by specific manufacturers, that people who bought weapons from these manufacturers were particularly likely to then use them in crimes, and that small caliber weapons in particular were being sold with a nod and a wink to clients who were more likely to see them used for illegal purposes. Noted the piece, since more than 80% of the small caliber weapons sold in the United States were being manufactured in California at the time, the report implied that reigning in California's small arms producers would have a large impact on gun crimes nationwide. Not surprisingly, says the piece, California's gun lobby went after Wintemute with a vengeance. The NRA sought to discredit his methodology, and Wintemute himself was repeatedly harassed and threatened. All right, fast forward to a July 29th piece by senior editor Dan Moraine in The Bee. Starts out noting there was nothing unusual about the University of Colorado's grant to its once promising student, James Holmes. If Holmes weren't accused of killing a dozen people and wounding 58, we'd never know that he received $21,000 for living costs while he pursued his doctorate in neuroscience. Nor was there anything odd about how the university paid for the stipend. The money came from an annual grant awarded by the National Institutes of Health. But notes Dan Moraine, if the NIH had granted money to a researcher delving into the reasons for mass shootings, there might have been trouble. In an Orwellian use of power politics, the gun lobby, led by the NRA, has in many instances muzzled federal agencies' abilities to fund basic research into gun violence. Said Dr. Garen Wintemute, UC Davis School professor and one of the few researchers in the nation who focuses on guns and gun violence, this is a deliberate effort to keep evidence from being collected. It is one more way to prevent policy reform. It's a brilliant strategy. Noted the piece, Wintemute has been researching gun violence for three decades, beginning when he was an emergency room physician. Over the years, he's published numerous studies related to guns, but private grants have funded most of that work since 1996, the year the NRA lobbied to restrict funding for research into gun violence. Yes, so in Colorado, a nut shoots 70 people, and we wring our hands and just ask, geez, I wonder why this is. Well, maybe we should look into why this is. Of course, to do that, we'd have to maybe spend some federal money. We'd have to actually go to the NIH and say, how about funding some studies? Ah, but then you'd run afoul of the NRA. This all makes good sense, doesn't it? All right, we've strayed into medicine here from science. Let's back out a little. We talked to Sam Keen on this program uh, two weeks ago about his book, The Violinist's Thumb, on the subject of genes and DNA. And sort of as a follow-up to that, we would note a piece in New Scientist July 21st, which shows that... um, Based on genetic data, we now think humans colonized North America in three successive migrational waves. And and this new study now suggests there might even been a fourth. Notes the piece after studying DNA from Native American groups in Canada and also Central and Southern America, David Reich of Harvard Medical School 
identified a major migration into the Americas from Asia about 13,000 years ago. He also found evidence of two smaller migrations. Reich's analysis included virtually no data from Native Americans in the U.S. because there's political issues over the use of their DNA. This data has to do with matching up uh, some DNA evidence from coprolites, ancient human feces found in caves, and comparing them to tools that are next to them. It's controversial, it's not clear, but it's curious, and we're going to have to talk about it more in future programs. And while we do that, we'll try and uh, graft into that uh, some new evidence that the human family tree might have developed another mysterious branch, an African sister species to the Neanderthals that once roamed Europe. This is based not on fossilized bones, as it has in the past, but on looking at the DNA in Africans. This is pretty curious stuff. They apparently took uh, DNA from forest-dwelling pygmies in Central Africa and two groups of hunter-gatherers in the other side of the continent, people from Tanzania, took a look at the DNA there and found evidence of something that's, well, it's a little different. It's not quite Neanderthal, and I guess it's evidently not from the Denisa Vens, from that, the, the finger bones they found in a cave in Siberia. This is something else. It's, it's in the DNA of these African uh, groups. It's some pretty cutting-edge genetics, and what it's pointing to is that a previously unknown species of humans interbred with Homo sapiens about 150,000 years ago. This tool will require some further evaluation. All right, one final item where science meets medicine. We have this. Apparently preventing obesity may be related to the timing of when you eat more than we realize. study done with mice allowing them to eat Meals only within an eight-hour period turned out produced healthier mice than those that could munch freely throughout the day. Apparently, researchers at the Salk Institute in La Jolla fed two groups of mice a high-fat diet. One group could snack whenever they liked. The others could only eat during an eight-hour window. Two other groups were fed a healthy diet under the same conditions. What I find curious is three months into this study, the weight of the mice on the all-day, all-fat diet increased 28%. Their blood sugar levels had gone up which is a risk factor for diabetes. They also had some liver damage. By contrast, the mice also eating a high-fat diet, but only for, for only eight hours a day, stayed healthier and didn't become obese. They also had better balance than mice on a healthy diet. Researchers speculate that the shortened feeding period gives metabolic systems longer to perform their functions uninterrupted by a new influx of nutrients. They now begin to experiment on human volunteers. So there you go. It may not be what you eat, but when. You know, I think I might need a snack, so let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.